0: There's been a really interesting newspaper article this past week. Um, There's a gang of academics, uh, I think over in the States, who've created some massive computer models. Uh, And those computer models in a a huge series of experiments have decided that uh, because of evolution, eventually what will happen is selfishness will disappear from humanity Uh, because ultimately all of these models have decided that the reality is that we, we need each other and therefore the natural evolutionary process is the things that work against that will eventually disappear out of humanity. Now, I know that we're talking... From this story to today, only two and a half thousand years or so. It's a relatively short space of time. But, I don't know about you, but I reckon that most of us would probably say, I'm not convinced that self-centeredness is disappearing out of the human race. I'm not convinced that it's kind of gradually... Reducing and reducing. I think everything that we see around us, everything that we, as Michael Jackson said when he looks in the mirror, everything that we see outside and within, remind us and convince us that those problems of the human race are not things which are gradually disappearing, but are a living reality, a continuous reminder. Of our problem. We all know that we desire the progress of the human race. It's, it's written into us, isn't it? It would be great if that idea, if that, mo- that, that model was true. But I think what both this, our own experiences, and this story that we see before us today, what both of those things do remind us is that we don't need a kind of a progressive hope we need a dramatic change. We actually need to be saved from our experience, saved from our reality, saved from the problems that we have. I think that this story, particularly this afternoon, is, again, as we've been saying right the way through this series, it's a great reminder. That's what story does. It holds up in front of us who we are, what we are, confronts us in a way which encouragingly says don't continue with the problem but rather look for the hope that is portrayed in the message of the Bible. So we're going to follow through that and I think what we're going to see as we progress is that Haman particularly stands there not as the kind of boo hiss. Uh, throw all kind of uh, abusive comments as he comes onto the stage. One of the purposes of Haman in the story is to remind us of our own condition, our own tendency to be self-centered, to be self-serving. And I think that as we work through the story this afternoon, hopefully that will come to light. So let's see what's happened. This is really, I think, one of the fantastic Turning point chapters in the whole of the story. It's a brilliant chapter the way it's written. Uh, What we've had up to now is Esther, the uh, young Jewish woman, is taken from a family, ends up as queen, and then, as a, a turn of events, Haman appears from a, a lineage, the Agagites, who are continuously, they're kind of, they're marked in the Bible as being those who are opposed to the God of the Bible. And Haman appears as the Agagite uh, who decides because of Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, because of his insubordination in the eyes of Haman, he, he's so incensed by his behavior that he decides not just to kill Uh, Mordecai, but to kill all of the Jewish race, every individual. Now he has the power to do that because the king, Xerxes, has elevated him to second in the whole of the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of Persia, the Medes and the Persians. At this point, in this part of the world, the most powerful nation that is known on earth, the greatest empire, extending uh, towards India and across Europe, incredibly powerful uh, Medo-Persian empire. He has the opportunity to do that. He has the opportunity to fulfill his heritage as an agagite which is to stand against the purpose of god in this world that's what he does he he isn't happy just to say that one individual now the way the situation turns up is that he's been invited to this banquet the night before he goes home and he is just boasting to the rest of his family Uh, about the fact that he is so rich so powerful and what's more he is the only person who's been invited to the banquet with the king and the queen he is absolutely top role top position he's got the kind of pips on the shoulder he's got the stripes on the arm he's got everything He is the man. He is what everybody would aspire to be. And as we said last week, in lots of ways, he speaks very powerfully to our culture today because so many people are striving for recognition, for position, for status. Hammond stands in a way to say, question that. Because what you're actually looking to do is only to create status in the, light, in the eyes of everybody around you. You are not taking into account that you live not only in the face of those around you, far more important than that, you live in the face of the living God. Uh, and that's interesting because we don't see him, and yet the Bible reminds us that we constantly live in the face of God. Everything that we do, everything that we say, is not hidden it is seen by God. We need to understand that. And yet Haman doesn't live like that. He goes home and he boasts and he basically says, look what I've achieved. But he's still not satisfied because Mordecai is still there. And his wife says to him, look, you've got the power. You've got the, you've got the pole built in outside, this huge pole. Uh, go to the king tomorrow and just arrange for Mordecai to be impaled on the pole. <laughs> That's just, do you know what? You were driving me nuts, basically. You're driving me crazy. We've got this fantastic house. We've got this fantastic chariot outside. We've got more servants than we can imagine. We can holiday at the beach whenever we want to. We can eat, we can drink. We've got everything. But this one guy, this one meaningless little individual is making my life a misery. Now, will you go and tell the king tomorrow that you want him killed? It's easy. Simple as that. So he goes into the palace the following morning. However, as we see from the narrative as it opens up, something else has gone on. If we can get that reading up on the screen, what we can see is that the king has not been able to sleep. Isn't that interesting? Esther was given the opportunity... She had the opportunity to make the decisive move against Haman. But she doesn't. She invites them to a banquet. She commits the time to God. And at that very night, where Mordecai's life is decided in one home that he's going to die by being impaled on a pole, so his. Here's Haman and Zeresh in their home, in their mansion, deciding that Mordecai is going to die. I don't know what time. Let's say 9 o'clock at night. He's going to die on a pole. All that you need to do tomorrow morning, go into the palace and arrange it with the king. He can be dead by 10 o'clock. It's as simple as that. However, in those next few hours, the king can't sleep. we would say, well, you know, so what? Apart from the fact that it then happens that he asks for something to be read. He asks for a book of records to be read. Things that had happened in his reign. All the amazing records. I guess he was probably thinking, you know, maybe it's not, you know, boring material. It's not get me to sleep material. Maybe it's just, you know, if I can't sleep, I might as well revel in my glory. And so he gets his his, uh, his servants to bring one of the record books. They just so happen to pick off the shelf, I'm sure it was probably a scroll rather than a book, the scroll that happened to have the account where Mordecai had saved the king's life. We read a few chapters back, just this little seeming side interest, uh, little statement about Mordecai, having saved the king's life because Big Thana and Teresh were uh, conspiring against the king and and Mordecai hears about it, informs Esther, and Esther uh, saves the king by passing the information on. There's a full inquiry and they end up being killed rather than the king. Nothing is done at that point. Why was nothing done? You ask yourself. Nothing was done because what needed to be done was now, not back then. Because what happened as the king reads about this, he suddenly remembers. Yeah, it was Mordecai. We did the inquiry, didn't we? What happened? What did we do for him? Nothing. Didn't we? That's scandalous. We should have done something. I'm a great king. I'm the kind of king who gives liberally to people who preserve me i need to be seen to be a good king and therefore i'm going to make sure that mordecai is honored because that reflects back on me because i'm a great king i'm I'm that kind of king he could have done that back then couldn't he and yet do you begin to see the way the story is being presented here it just so happens that he wasn't honored back then Because it just so happens that the king had to be able to not sleep on that particular night. Because it just so happened that that particular scroll had to be pulled down off the shelf. Because it happened that the king had to be uh, read that account on that night. So that the following morning he could decide to honor Mordecai the very next day. Because hours before Mordecai's death sentence had been struck in the mansion of Haman and Zeresh. And so the king decides, I'm going to honor him. And in this absolutely wonderful, beautiful, amazing twist of events, the king says, who's in the palace? And who happens to be there, none other than Haman? Right at the point in time where he's going to come into the king and say, can I just take the life of Mordecai? And the king would say, yeah, no problem. Who is Mordecai? No problem. I don't know him. Take his life. No issue. You're the second most important person in the whole of the kingdom. Of course you can do that. No issue. Take his life. And yet the king had Mordecai in his mind as his saviour because he'd had read to him that very night how Mordecai had preserved him. And it just so happened that Haman was there. And then the king says, "Let's. Who? what would you do? What would you do for the person that you wanted to honor? Now, Mordecai uh, is just not even, it's like you can just put yourself in Haman's shoes just for a minute. You're going to do one job, and the king just gives you the greatest opportunity of personal sort of honor it just gives you an open door and he says now what would you do and he said everything Mordecai I'll forget about him now because I've got the opportunity who would the king honour more than me of course it's me that he wants to honor the, the way that the narrative is written is just superb in the way that it carries us along gets us into the mindset of Haman, who in a moment forgets one purpose because there's a greater self-centered purpose. This self-centered purpose can wait for a while because this one is even more important. This is about me being honored in front of the whole of the city. Oh, well, I'll tell you what I would do. I'd dress him up in the king's clothes. I'd put him on the king's horse. I'd parade him through the streets and I I would honor him so that everybody sees him fantastic idea Haman Xerxes says that's a great idea go and do it for Mordecai it's, it's what I mean talk about the rug pulled out from under your feet it's just startling it, the, the timing do you ever have one of those situations where you realize that the timing and life's events, the way things have worked out, the way this has happened and this has happened and this has happened and I'm here at this moment in time and if all of those other things had not happened then I would not be in this situation right. There is something bigger going on. That's how Mordecai felt at that moment in time. It feels as the way the story unfolds that Mordecai has now, uh, sorry, Haman is now realizing he is just out of control. He thinks he is in control. But within a day, everything happens in such a way for him to realize he has no control whatsoever. Within moments of expecting to have Mordecai killed, he is now leading him on a horse, proclaiming his name in the name of the king. What a transformation. What a power and an authority behind that process. That's what this story is wanting to explain to us, describe to us. That's what we see in the life of Esther those two and a half thousand years ago, we see the power of God working convincingly, unstoppable, so that we see that Haman, who thinks that he is in control in every situation of life, he has got the world at his feet, actually has no control whatsoever. He parades Mordecai through the streets. It must have been the most humiliating experience that he he could imagine. There is a tradition, whether it's true or not, there is a tradition that Zeresh, um, who understood or believed that this must be Mordecai who's leading the, uh, the horse, actually threw rubbish, onto the person who was leading the horse. The tradition goes that Zeresh threw rubbish onto her own husband's head. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it just kind of magnifies that whole sense of a turning of the tide. Complete reversal. And Mordecai is honored. And Haman goes home, as we read, absolutely destroyed. We read in verse 12, after Mordecai returned to the king's gate, after Mordecai, afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zaresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. That is a fantastically important little phrase that he uses there. Because what we see earlier on in the book is we see Mordecai whose head is covered in grief. We see Mordecai who sees in the future only death and destruction. What we now see is that not only is Haman just shamed, but we get a little indication that his head is now covered in grief. Almost an open door, or a door beginning to open to the next little section. Because what he does is he goes home and he tells all of his family exactly what has happened. His advisors and his wife, Zaresh said to him, since Mordecai, excuse me, before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. I, I, I think... I want to suggest to you that that little section where we read of Haman and his head covered in grief is he began to realize what was going on. And it was confirmed when he got home by Zeresh and his advisors. The tide has been turned. You cannot stand against him because he's of Jewish origin. Why is that so important? I think because, and I guess, for a start, Haman epitomizes the idea of standing against God in this world. And secondly, the words of Zeresh state that you cannot possibly stand against God in this world. Because the way that you stand against God inevitably is to stand against his people. That's what Haman does. He stands against God's people. And, and what we see clearly is you can't do that. You cannot stand against God's people. That makes God sound almost racist in a sense of, here's my race, the Jews, and I'm going to protect them. These are, these are you know, against whatever. Is God like that? What we've seen again and again as we've been working through this story is what is at stake is not a people. In fact, God makes it really clear. He says, I didn't choose you because you're good. In fact, you're you're, you're sinful people. You're a mess. You're corrupt. I, I just love you. That's great news, actually, by the way. Because if you think that you need to be a certain kind of person for God to accept... Uh, God reverses that. He just says, do you know what? You can be a complete mess, but I love you. It's great news. But he also says, "I, I, I am going to purpose through you the whole of my plan of salvation. You are part of the process for me to create in this world the possibility of being reconciled to God. So if Haman had won, Jesus wouldn't have happened. We said that a few weeks ago. That's what's at stake. Haman is not just standing against a people group at a particular point in history. He's standing against the idea of God delivering a savior into the world. Now the other thing that we know from the ancients, in fact I was watching a a, couple of uh, documentaries on the ancient Greeks just in this past week really interesting to see the way everything was written around everything was described in terms of the gods it was seen in that way Uh, if you won a battle it was because the gods are with you if you lost the battle it was because the gods were against you what does Zeresh's wife's wife say uh, sorry what does Zeresh his wife say She says you cannot stand against the God of the Jews. Because when we look back in time, we can see how an insignificant, impossible uh, people who had no military strength whatsoever in some remarkable way were preserved and kept because God was working with them. God was working amongst them. We don't think in that way anymore, but it's certainly the way Zeresh thought about it. And she understood at that point in time, Haman, you are standing against the living God. You've got no chance. In exactly the same... I mean, she, I don't know what... you know. It's quite remarkable the way she turns. She turns within 24 hours. Just 24 hours, however many hours, 20, 18, 20, 24 hours earlier. She was saying, Do you know what, we can, we can nail this guy. Mordecai I just go and get him impaled and now she's saying you cannot stand against him because God is working we might not like that idea we might not we might kind of recoil against the idea of a God who we cannot stand against the idea of a God who is absolute a God who is going to deliver what he is going to deliver in this world we might hate that idea But I guess that some of us are experiencing what that actually means. I I know that we've, many occasions, we reach certain points in life where we realize, do you know what? I cannot resist this God. He just keeps coming at me. He just keeps coming at me and coming at me. And I've run, and I've denied, and I've stopped doing this, and I've stopped doing that. But the reality is, I have no peace whatsoever. There is something about the message of this God that is unstoppable. How many times have you experienced that in your life? How many times have you reached that point where you realize that what is going on in life is not just some kind of whole mix of circumstances which are just luck and judgment and whatever you manage to recover from situations but rather that there is something greater a greater authority a greater power and a greater presence behind the events in life and you've reached a point where you say I cannot stand against it I just cannot stand against it you know You might have reached that point. And for many, that is such a critical decision, critical moment in life where you've been standing and observing and seeing the way things unfold, and you've heard the message of the Bible about a God who moves in this world, a God who is determined to send salvation through His Son, and you hear it and you see that it just keeps coming at you, and coming at you, and coming at you. Can I encourage you? Do not reach that point and allow yourself to continue to push against, but rather respond to that unstoppable God. Make that decision. It seems to me as though Haman had just crossed the line. Right at the very end in verse 15, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. It's like in one day, all the plans, all the ideas, he's just on a, well, I guess on a roller coaster. At every moment, he's dragged to the next position, and he's pulled along. Have you ever been that sense of being out of control? Now, at this moment in time, when he is dragged to that feast, when he's dragged to the banquet, when he said you cannot stand against him, the wise thing to do at that moment in time is to stop and give in. Because that kind of God, the God who initially by human nature we would love to resist and we hate the idea of a God who is intervening in just that way is actually just the kind of God That we need. The one that we don't like by human nature is actually the God that we desperately need. We need a God who is relentless. We need a God who is going to break in. We need a God who is going to challenge and stop and arrest and grab a hold of us. Because what we said right at the beginning was asking, what is our human condition? Are we hoping for some sort of evolutionary process that gets rid of this self-centeredness? Or do we actually need a God who is going to break into our individual lives and is going to confront us with a mirror that says across the top of it, Haman. A mirror that says across the top of it, Haman. A mirror that says, look at this, here's Haman, chapter 6, he's self-centered. Every opportunity that he has, he's looking for what he can gather. New Testament tells us that even the things that we do, which we think are good, are marked with deceit and corruption. The reality is that what we need is a God who is going to grab a hold of us, going to just stop us in our tracks not give up he's not the kind of god who's going to hold a nice comfy little conversation to say how about it you know this is what i'm offering what do you think you know this is what i'm selling god isn't some kind of market salesman who stands at his fruit and veg store and says look at everything that i'm offering do you fancy it do you fancy this Because none of us would ever turn and respond to a God like that. Because we are deep down too corrupt. We need a God who is able to wake up a king in the middle of the night. We need a God who is able to happen to have just the scroll regarding Mordecai read to him in the middle of the night. We need a God who is going to make sure that Mordecai isn't honored months or years before. We need a God who is going to arrange all of those situations to confront and to challenge and to determine in front of you and me. The God who we don't like at times is precisely the God that we need. But you know, just in case we think that that God is somehow the kind of God who's distant and out there, like some kind of... He's just playing with the events of this world. We see Jesus. What does the king say? What would you do to honor the person who I want to honor? I'd put him on a great horse and clothe him and parade him in front of everybody. Well, our king, he rode on a donkey. And he was paraded in front of all sorts of people who honored him for a moment. But within a week, the honor was completely reversed to hatred. And at that moment in time, it was God who paraded him. It was his father in heaven who paraded him there. He paraded him in front of the whole of the people of Jerusalem at that moment in time. Paraded him in front of the high court of the high priest. Paraded him in front of Pilate's court. Paraded him in front of the city streets and up the hill outside of Jerusalem. It was his father in heaven who took over the parading of his son. He paraded him. You say, well, it doesn't look much like parading, to be honest. It looks devastating. But actually, it is just that. It was God parading him. Jesus says, the hour has come. Now is the moment for me to be displayed and for you to be displayed both in honor. says in John chapter 17. The hour has come for you to be glorified and for me to be glorified. What does glorifying look like as far as Jesus is concerned? Well, for Mordecai, it was on the top of a horse, clothed in righteous. Yeah. Clothed in amazing clothes and paraded in front of everybody. And for Jesus, glory looked like being broken, and being stripped, and being bloodied, and being nailed to a cross, and being portrayed as the dying king in front of everybody. That's what glory looked like. Why does that look like glory for Jesus? Why does a dying king nailed to a cross with his his garments stripped from him, look like glory. Because we know that it is the doorway, it is the opening for two things to be achieved. One, for him to return one day clothed in glory. He's going to return and be paraded again. Just in the same way as Mordecai was paraded, only this time he's going to be paraded across the whole of the world in front of every human being who has ever lived. He is going to be portrayed and paraded as the triumphant, glorious one. But there's something else. It is the doorway for those who trust and believe in him To also be clothed in righteousness. To have robes placed on them. You see, what Haman suggested in a remarkable way was just a little indication of precisely how God works. You see, he takes the broken, he takes the discarded, he takes the one who is facing death, that's Mordecai, and he reverses it. And he clothes him in righteousness and he clothes her in righteousness and he portrays him and he portrays her across the whole of the world, everybody who's lived and he says, these are mine. These are mine. I am honoring these. What would you do for the one who you would honor? The king asks Haman. What would you do? I'd clothe him in Amazing clothes. What would you do? Jesus. I would clothe them in righteousness. The robes of righteousness that are so impeccable that they are my robes. They are the dead. They are the walking dead. They don't deserve to live. But I've bought them. I've died for them. And I will clothe them. And I will placard them across the whole of the cosmos as my people. Why? Because I am the kind of God who is relentless in pursuing, in breaking in, and in saving those who at times rebel against me saving them. Do you know what? I find that One of the most important aspects of my own Christian walk. The fact that I know that my rebellion against God, my failure, my sinfulness, the fact that I don't walk around continually like somebody who looks as though they are a child of God. I don't do that. But God pursues me relentlessly. And clothes me in righteousness one day. In fact, I'm so convinced, or he's so convinced, that I am that, that I'm described as already being clothed in righteousness. Don't look like, but I am. It's that secure. Because I am his. And he is mine. Now the reality is that Haman reached that point where, in actual fact, at the moment where he was whisked away for the king's banquet, or rather Esther's banquet, he should have just surrendered. We're going to see next week whether he surrenders. But the challenge for us, in the face of a relentless God, will we? Will we surrender? Or will we continue to live like Haman? Determined to work it out for myself. Determined to stand opposed to the God who we see described throughout the Bible.